Hi, welcome to episode five of Speak Like a CEO. Have you ever imagined what the Berlin startup scene looked like in its very early beginnings? Today we talk to Jack of all trades Christoph Redke, a Berlin startup original on the genesis of the culture, the power of a good pitch, and how to found the right thing, and much more. Christoph is the CEO of Berlin Startup Academy and has been a startup founder, investor, writer, speaker, and mentor for almost 20 years. Tune in to hear all about his latest sobering experience in California and why he thinks San Francisco might no longer be the place to be. Enjoy! The thing that I was really fascinated by, and it always have been, is uh, people. Finally, technology did something for what would be the single most valuable piece of advice you'd give us. us. found what we loved to do. That people with passion can change the world for the better. That's what we believe. Today we're here with Christoph Rethke, who is the founder of the Accelerator Program, Berlin Startup Academy, and a pretty well-known figure in the Berlin startup scene, I would say. So I first met Christoph at his Berlin meetup a few weeks ago um, after a friend recommended me that I absolutely had to go, and she was definitely right. So thank you to Lauren if you're listening to this, and Christoph, welcome. Welcome indeed. So, Christopher, before we start about all the great things you are doing and have been done as a sort of a fixture in the Berlin startup scene for the last 20 years, we have a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. Uh, the first one's pretty obvious. Coffee or tea? Coffee. He says, with a cup of coffee in front of him. Do you work better early in the morning or late at night? Neither. <laughs> uh, who's your biggest inspiration? Mark Aurelius, the uh, Roman emperor. Okay, we come to talk about that. What's the most used app on your phone? Facebook, I'm afraid. Oh, no, uh, Google Maps. Google Maps, okay. Facebook or Twitter? I think I can guess this one. Facebook. <laughs> one thing on your bucket list? Um, play with a band in, in the, on the largest stage in Berlin, or like either Olympic Stadium or uh, Waldbühne. You know, oh. Like rock it out one time in my life. <laughs> cool. 20,000 people <laughs> loving me. And maybe one bonus one for you, uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley or Berlin? Definitely Berlin. Uh, Silicon Valley and, and uh, San Francisco are unfortunately over. Okay, we're going to talk about that. San Francisco is over, a big hole. <laughs> I, I wish it was different, but it is. But first of all, Marco Aurelius, how come? Why, why is he your biggest inspiration? Well, um, I, the only thing that I've ever properly learned and have a degree in is uh, ancient history, mm-hmm. Greece and Romans. So I actually wrote my master's thesis about uh, a problem from, from, like a philosophical problem from the 4th century BC, from the Greek world. Though. But like if, if, if you read all this stuff from the ancient philosophers and, and you meet and find out and examine the sources about the great characters of antiquity, uh, you have to, you will stumble into Marcus Aurelius and not from the gladiator film, like most <laughs> of the listeners, I suppose, yeah. but rather because he left us a, a great book with uh, his thoughts on Stoic philosophy and uh, he is like the, the one hero for anyone who, who believes that, that power does not have to corrupt automatically. And mm-hmm. uh, I have actually a a picture. Uh, I had a picture painted for my for my living room in Berlin, and uh, there are several things and people on it. And the biggest part is actually Marco Aurelius' head, uh, and uh, as a reference to 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 him and to his influence on my life. Mm-hmm. So you did your thesis on ancient history, correct? That's right. How did you come from ancient history to working in the startup scene in Berlin? Can you talk us through that? Well, the obvious answer is that uh, if you hold a master's degree in ancient history, there's only so many career options, right? Like the two most obvious are becoming a teacher or uh, a taxi driver. Uh, 
and I hadn't studied to become a teacher, I didn't have the right degree, and I officially have the world's worst sense of orientation. <laughs> so taxi driver... Hence Google Maps yeah. is your favorite <laughs> app. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so I could have become the world's worst taxi driver, uh, but that was not really an option, yeah, because I considered myself reasonably bright at the time. Um, and it just so happened that uh, in, in the 90s, when all of this uh, played out, that was just the time when the internet became real for the first time. Yeah? Like, uh, it wasn't a playground for, for geeks anymore. The first businesses emerged, the first websites were created, the first money was spent uh, by big brand companies, but you know, also smaller companies that were developing their own business models. And I just happened uh, to start to code HTML together with a friend, a fellow student, early on. And you know, uh, you unfortunately, you're not going to experience that anymore. But like when an uh, industry starts, it takes very, very little experience and knowledge to be a hotshot in it. Yeah, that's like the the like the the glamour of the early days. Yeah? You, so were you a hotshot back in the nineties? By today's standards, I was absolutely catastrophically bad. But by the standards of back then, when nobody even really knew what a browser was, I was pretty good. Mm. Um, for, for, for listeners, I would encourage you to check out the slideshow on Christoph's uh, website where there's some interesting pictures back from the 80s and 90s of uh, ancient history and uh, early hacker days. Me so, and a toga. Yeah. <laughs> you and a toga, seriously. Uh, yeah. You haven't checked it out. <laughs> Right. So um, talk us about Berlin Startup Academy. So did, when did the idea come to you and wh why did you make it happen? Well, um, I don't want to reach too far in, in, into the history. Yeah? Like I, in 1999, I uh, joined my first startup team myself, but there's no direct connection there. Yeah? I was always like either self-employed or starting my, my own companies. And in 2010, I was invited to run an American accelerator program uh, called Founder Institute, which was the first Ever, like the first concept uh, ever run in Germany that, that tried to uh, help budding entrepreneurs to become better or to turn their ideas into businesses in a structured way. Before that, I really hadn't even heard of that idea. Like, you know, Y Combinator was arguably the very first, but only very few people had heard about that or, you know, thought about the methodology. And uh, I ran the program for two uh, semesters, uh, and after that, I had you know, caught fire and, and, and learned really so much about what you can do uh, when, when you s s pull together a group of experienced entrepreneurs and that new ones profit from their knowledge and from their access, of course, to resources, to, to money, uh, you know, to the uh, inner circles. And that worked so well that uh, I started my own program in 2012 based on my own entrepreneurial past of the network that I built starting in 99 or before uh, and the some of the mechanics and methodology that I've learned during these two program uh, courses with Founder Institute. And since it was my own program and nobody you know, called the shots, I could uh, reframe and redevelop it every class. Yeah? So uh, I always try to, like with every course, I try to incorporate what I had learned the previous one. And from this, from the circles uh, or from the program uh, circles that I ran, I have a portfolio of 15 startups that I'm a shareholder and or investor in, mm -hmm. uh, and that I you know, tri still try to bring up to the billion dollar line uh, to finally retire and live out my remaining days on a yacht in Saint-Tropez, uh, if I'm not yet there. We'll join you for <laughs> that one. Talk about the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, exactly. That's also one for the bucket list. What was one of the kind of first things that you learned about startups in those early days? Like, what was kind of that aha moment or the 
like the moment where it clicked and you realized that this is how startups grow or get funding or are successful in Europe? What's so powerful about startups is that they're the, the freest organizations imaginable. Yeah? So for me, uh, it, like founding a startup, joining a team, being in this industry is, is an act of immense liberation. Uh, something that millions and millions of people sadly will never experience or haven't mm. yet experienced because they take it for granted that in order to become a proper adult and, and you know, plan your economic future and family, etc., you have to become part of a larger organization that caters for you, that mm. you know, sets the rules but pays you money every, every month. And uh, to an extent, I had this, this picture too, yeah, like as a history graduate, you know, how many options do you have, as I said. Mm. And uh, starting my first startup was really an immense uh, moment of liberation for me because it redefined all my options. Before that, I had never thought that it was in me to you know, be one of them, like one of these guys uh, starting companies, creating something from scratch. I always thought that only if you had a degree in business, you could achieve something like that, or if you had millions on the bank. And with you know, the advent of technology and technology becoming so much cheaper, I realized that this was now something like an option for just about anyone. And about that, you know, for me personally too. So for me, this whole startup and entrepreneurship thing, especially after we had failed with our first startup, you know, uh, I mean, we didn't get the money. We had a fantastic product, but uh, nonetheless, I had, you know, passed the Rubicon, if you will. Like I couldn't go back behind that. I had mm. rediscovered myself as an entrepreneur, mm. and that has been my main theme uh, ever since. Um, that, that, that's quite interesting. I mean, passing the Rubicon, you say. So once you've become an entrepreneur, founder, you say you basically can't go back to being an employee. Some can, but I never yeah. understand how. Yeah? Like, mm. I mean, some friends of mine, after you know, failing with a project or, or another, mm. uh, you know, I mean, you need money. Right? Mm. Yeah. And, and I've, I've been in that situation two or three times. Like, I burned all my money on the projects, on, on mm. the startups that I founded. And I needed to get back to a place where I mm. had a regular income to pay my bills and get the tax authorities off my back. Yeah? Uh, and uh, under these circumstances, well, I, you know, I did interim management. Um, I can understand that you know, some people join an organization to yeah. well, you know, make some money, get some more connections. But um, like me today, like when I think, when I imagine to have ever to work back in such static organization it gives me hmm. it gives me the goosebumps of fright really like I think I would be so bad at that uh, the only organization that I could ever join again would be one that would put me at the very top again yeah. <laughs> you know, surrounding <laughs> with people who you know mitigate <laughs> my, my uh, extreme science when you're starting out though as like an entrepreneur or a founder do you think like failure is an important part of understanding okay, this doesn't work, but this is what could work for the next time. Do you think that's an important learning that every entrepreneur should have? Or do you think it would have been way better if the first thing you'd ever done had succeeded and you'd never known another? Yes, I do. <laughs> if, I, if the first thing that I did uh, back then in 99, 2000 had succeeded, I don't think that I would be here. Yeah, or that's, you, know, you would have had to you know, fly to Barbados or something to have this interview with me. Gladly. Yeah. <laughs> bucket list again. But, yeah, bucket list again, but they didn't have me. Yeah. Like, uh, um, failure is nothing that you do for the sake of it. Uh, sometimes, if, if you look at the startup or digital propaganda, you could, mm. you could think that you know some people advocate failure so much yeah. as if that was an end by itself. Yeah, like fail fast. Mm. You know, woohoo! Uh, yeah. But, but it's, it's always like fail fast and try again and try exactly. harder. Exactly. 
I mean, it's just inevitable. And uh, when you accept that it's inevitable, you can start dealing with it by making, trying to make it less, less hurtful. Mm -hmm. And I would indeed say that uh, everyone that I enjoy working with, and ev like even the extended network, yeah, like I'm always saying, I'm working with a network of about 200 CEOs and uh, investors who I'm friends with or I've mm -hmm. worked with or there were mentors at my program. And I don't think that a single one of them has not been through the valley of death. Hmm. And it definitely gives you a feeling of, you know, having been in the trenches together and knowing what this is about. And you know, nobody, as opposed to what some people think, nobody looks down on somebody talking about these, you know, difficult or dark moments. Yeah? It's, it's not at all a happy-go-lucky uh, culture, as it sometimes seems to be appear, uh, hmm. appear in the press. It's, it's, it's very honest, it's very down-to-earth, and everybody knows about... Uh, the dark moments yeah. to an extent that you probably can't even part be part of that circle if you haven't been there if you're indeed really all happy-go-lucky because you know with your family's money you've you've made it big on mm. the first strike mm. and when i mean today a lot of uh, budding entrepreneurs and, and founders coming to you asking for advice wanting to be part of the program what do you what do you look out for um how do you select the ones you want to be involved in there's several answers to that because it depends on it really depends on the on the context. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, I hardly I'm talk about it, but I'm, I sometimes help like social entrepreneurs too. You know, please don't tell too many people about it. But I do that, and, and under these circumstances, you know, the, uh, the the drive for money and this this yard in Saint Tropez can be the motive. Mm -hmm. But in, in most other circumstances, I'm always saying that I can't afford to be charitable. Yeah, I can only, as opposed to universities, as opposed to the public space and everybody funded by taxpayers' money, I can't afford to do things without there being a prospect of uh, you know, paying back um, you know, physically, money-wise, in, into my pocket. Uh, unless I'm, I'm really being paid for the time. Yeah, but uh, I can't afford to, to exclusively or mainly work with entrepreneurs who I think have no chance of succeeding in a way that also their uh, surroundings succeeds with them. Uh, so like if, if I'm in this environment, like in my own program, like with Berlin Startup Academy, I'm obviously really, really focused on can this become big or reasonably big too, so that, that I profit, my, my mentors profit, and you know this entire ecosystem profits. When I'm in a, in a social entrepreneurship uh, environment, it's probably more about the experience and, and people understanding what the methodologies are and increasing the likelihood of, of success not with the goal, however, of making me rich. Yeah? And then there's like a, yet another context, or there's probably somewhere, like I'm, I sometimes teach in a, in a student university uh, environment, and there it's very much about like the teaching as such, not so much about like what they do with that, because normally I'm, I'm out before that happens. Uh, and I also help large corporations in working more entrepreneurially, uh, starting entrepreneurship programs. And there it's a mixture of both. I'm, I'm constantly preaching that you can't really do this for the sake of itself, that there has to be like a, a clear vision of, of a profit that, that you want to make eventually. But uh, there's also this other side that I think that this entire country and society needs to adopt and learn more about entrepreneurship methods. Uh, so in that case, it's really about the methods for their own sake. And you know, let's talk about making profits from that in a couple of years. So for a normal startup that has kind of the goal or the intention of making money and being successful in their own right, what are kind of like the first things that you look for? Because obviously, I guess you only have a limited amount of time to get to know the founders and the team before you make a decision whether to invest your time and your money. How much do they know about what they're doing? Because most 
early startups don't know nearly enough about what they want to achieve. Uh, and, and some of them haven't even properly researched all the options. Yeah? Like when I see that like really, really obvious questions are not answered or haven't been tackled yet, then I know that, that it's probably too early. However, sometimes you know you meet those guys who, who already have like a firm uh, network, but who have also started asking the right questions to the right people, who have uh, collected feedback from potential customers, who have talked to other entrepreneurs in the space and maybe to investors, and whose, whose story has become a lot more solid. Still not perfect, and the idea might be, in my view, rubbish, but at least uh, tackling it with the right attitude and with the right methodology, and that's, that's really, really valuable, and you don't see that so often. Yeah? And, and you mentioned the story. How powerful is it for a startup to have a good story to tell? It's, I mean, yeah, there's two sides to the answer. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, no good story will cover up a shitty idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like that's also one of the um, there's also one of the misconceptions that, that this whole American startup you know that there's a lot of bullshit going around etc. And that if you are uh, glamorous and can tell a story well, you know the the money will come flying after you. That is absolutely not true. So, um, but uh, you know if if you're onto something but can't even properly communicate it or haven't found a narrative for for you. Like, if you can convince me, you won't be able to convince your employees or your potential investors. So the lack of a story as a, as a tool to achieve very material goals, uh, that's like uh, a shot in the head. You, you have to have that. Do you think this can be learnt, though, how to tell your story? Or do you think you have to have this innate ability to communicate what you're trying to sell from the start? It can be learned. 100%. Everybody can learn it. Even people who stutter or half-mute, half-deaf, uh, like I've... I've worked with people who could barely pronounce their own name without starting to, you know, blush <laughs> or stutter or both. Yeah? And uh, ultimately, they always uh, played it out well on stage and eventually started winning startup contests and pitching contests and, and became ever more con uh, confident. So, yes, definitely, it, it can be done. And you, you, you developed this method called the pitch bridge, right? Maybe you can talk us through that. It seems quite, quite interesting, quite relevant now. Context. The pitch bridge, that's something that you can uh, see on our website. Uh, I'm sharing all the methods that I develop uh, open source so anyone can work with them and, and redevelop them or reframe them anything they want. But it's, it, it really comes from the situation that I'm often with people who are not natural storytellers, mm -hmm. not natural pitchers, if you will, who, who are technical guys or who are really versed in an industry and that's what they're good at, but they have never to convince like a crowd or, uh, you know, get people enthusiastic about mm -hmm. a particular, particular idea. So I thought that I, I need to come up with a structure that is firm enough to uh, provide hold to people who, at the beginning, still want to take it easy and go forward step by step, instead of having to invest a great amount of creativity and you know, storytelling skills that they don't have naturally uh, in order to pitch well. And that's how, how I came up with it. You know, it's, it's essentially, that's why I'm calling it a bridge. Yeah? It, it takes you from like the riverside of people having no clue what you're doing to the riverside where everybody knows what you're doing, understands it, and also knows how to help you. And there's a few uh, stepping stones between mm -hmm. these two to get you from A to B. Uh, there's a certain sequence in which I propose that you lay uh, out your argument, which is a little bit different than what you normally hear about these pitching techniques. And I've implemented it over the years many, many times, and it has helped people. And uh, that's why this year I, I published it uh, as, a, as a video, and that's why I believe in it. Uh, it's particularly for people who 
who are not naturals. And I think it's also useful for people who are still in large organizations, because also in large organizations and companies, it becomes ever more important to convince people to get them on your side instead of just relying right. on hierarchy yeah. and command mm -hmm. and obey. Are you able to give us an example of all, at all of a individual or a company that has used this pitch bridging methodology? All of them, I hope. Okay. You know, like I'm not always there. Like, yeah. like at my yeah. demo days, of course, I, I, like I, I have people work that way. I, um, I help run the entrepreneurship program of uh, Deutsche Telekom, Ucubate. And on every, uh, every demo day they have twice per year, you will see about 10 or 12 teams pitching along that method. Uh, 29th of November, by the way, is the next time in Bonn. You're all invited. It's free, but in Bonn. Uh, and, um, and, you know, all the startups that have graduated from, from my startup academy, uh, mm -hmm. great companies like uh, Forex Fix and, and Zenovo, uh, but also the, the social entrepreneurship companies that I work with. Uh, so if you know what to look for, you will find them everywhere. Okay. And what should we be looking for? <laughs> Well, for example, the, uh, the Ucubate demo day on the 29th. Uh, I don't have a demo day coming up with, with new startups uh, in the immediate future. So uh, there's not a new generation of, of these guys coming towards you. But since I'm, I'm really teaching it everywhere I go, in universities, uh, in classes, I hold my own workshops for that. Mm, I mean, you are, uh, if you have the money, uh, invited to uh, you know, hold one of these or have me hold one of these workshops for you and your clients. I'll be happy to. Um, changing tack slightly, you, you also wrote a book called Founding the Right Thing in German, I think, just in German, right? Das Richtige Gründen. Founding the Right Thing. Um, that, that title begs the question, how do you know what to found or what the right thing would be to found? And I, I guess the book gives the answers, right? To an extent. I mean, obviously, you know, you're asking how I know, and, and the proper answer is I don't, right? I don't. I just pretend that I do. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's uh, important to understand. If I really thought that I knew what to found, I would be uh, an arrogant idiot uh, or like something like a spiritual leader or something. Like mm -hmm. Only spiritual leaders that, that lead their audiences into uh, collective suicide are absolutely certain uh, of what to do. You know? that's, that's just like inherently true. And, and with me, um, I pretend to know it, but since I'm clear that I only pretend to, um, people who read all this stuff and listen to me are probably aware that I only pretend to too. That means that they can think through the argument, but always with justified doubt that it's, I mean, there is no absolute truth in this. But I'm trying, as, as, as we all do, to get as close as I can from my own experiences to, to my view of truth. And by me presenting it as the universal truth, I just make it a little bit more poignant and, and pretentious. And I do want people to you know, react in a I'm going to show you. You think this is not going to work? I'm going to show you. I'm going to stick it to you. Yeah? That's mm -hmm. just what I'm, I'm looking forward to. And you only provoke that if you're also really adamant and really um, firm about this, you know, this opinion and, and this, this insights and this advice that you give people. So it's, it's a bit of a rhetorical trick, I have to admit. Mm -hmm. I actually really like that. Um, and I also really like the fact that you're very open with your, your tools and your tricks and your experiences. Um, you seem to be like really like forthcoming with everything that you've learned and you want to pass this on. So my question is, why did you write your book in German and not English? Because I was paid to. Okay. I mean, like, you know, as with so many things, yeah, like I mean, there's, uh, behind most things, there's not like a mission or an abstract thought, but, you know, somebody yeah. gives you money or like sets the framework and, 
Uh, this book was commissioned by a university, by a Western German uh, university from Saarland, uh, which is you know, German Siberia, you know, far to the west though. Uh, and they, they, were, uh, they wanted to have a series of e-books for their own entrepreneurship class. So they commissioned mm -hmm. it to several authors with different aspects, you know, funding, HR, and, and they commissioned the, like the first book to me where it was about laying, laying the groundwork. You know, how do you identify your own uh, motivation as a founder? Uh, how do you identify uh, directions that you can take? What are common misconceptions? In, the, in this book, there's also a checklist of 22 questions that like, if you fill them out uh, and you find good answers to all of them, then you're probably onto something. Uh, so like it's a, it's a mixture of uh, you know, anecdotes, uh, structured help, uh, and, and insights that I'm passing on to anyone who's just starting out. And my main concern is always, you know, uh, don't put all your passion and money into something that is probably never going to work. Hmm. Um, uh, and if I can people, keep people from that, uh, my, my work is done. Mm -hmm. I like that. And, and what other recommendations would, would you give to budding entrepreneurs? You said 22 questions and you mentioned one, but there are probably one or two other. Which ones are particularly important that people ask themselves before they go on that very hard journey? I think it's not even a particular question. It's, it's going out there and giving your, uh, your surroundings, the people around you, a chance to take you to the next step, help you mm -hmm. get into the next step. And mm -hmm. You only can do that if you step out and... Um, and expose your idea even to tough uh, feedback. If if you ask everyone out there, like, would they do they like what you do? Do they share your view of a problem? Uh, you know, people who are coming to my meetup and ask someone like me, who's probably going to hit them uh, around the ears, you know, on a on a Monday night, and but simply step, uh, daring to step out and talk about what you're working on. That's exactly the attitude that that you need. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you do that often enough, uh, like. Get in contact with with pros, but also take all the knowledge that's out there and talk to potential customer customers. Then all the the questions will come to you by themselves, and the answers will come to you as well. And the doubts, you know, they they will be raised uh, automatically from all this feedback. It's a life changing experience, mm -hmm. and it all comes down to the powers of the individual. Uh, without money, without technology, you can already step out and find out so much. Uh, and these things will answer all your questions. I think sometimes it's really hard when we care so much about a project or a startup um, to really take on the feedback, though. You know, we are going down one path and we don't want to hear any other advice that is, like, away from that. Um, is there a way that people can take this on as constructive criticism and actually change what they're doing or iterate what they're doing? In my world, that's happening all the time. Yeah? I, I, I'm, when I was with Deutsche Telekom many years ago, when you were little. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that that was really a, an environment where it was really, really uncommon to give your colleagues advice because it would be understood as, as criticism. Uh, like when the project failed, you would rather not talk about it. Or, you know, if anybody brought up, hey, you know, next time around, we could try this and that. And, and the answer would always be, you try this and that. Yeah, something like that. Um, but that's a long time ago. And uh, wherever I go, meanwhile, like talking to founders, but also in established structures, everyone... Uh, seems to have gotten that like this sort of feedback or advice uh, is not intended to harm, uh, but but opens doors. Obviously, it's also a question of the right tonality. Uh, like if you if you start as like your advice with uh, something like "Hey, you asshole," <laughs> things <laughs> can sucked. only go things can only go downhill <laughs> from there, right? But uh, if if the, your intention is clearly that you want to help people become more successful 
uh, and you can make even you know you make this sound credible by by you even being involved in the endeavor. So that their success is your success, then uh, the whole thing is absolutely rock solid. You know why would you um, repel someone who's obviously interested in in your progress and in your success? You know, um, you'd rather say, hey, you know, can we maybe go through this or meet again, or can you line this out a little bit more uh, for me? And that's that's really my world. It, it never happens, uh, and hopefully it, it won't. Uh, that that people really jump up uh, when when I tell them or give them some advice and say, hey, you know, uh, you're arrogant and, and stupid, and I'm not going to do anything, uh, you know, of, of what you what you propose. So that really, really never happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to come back to what you said in the beginning about San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and you said it's it's over. And I know you feel quite strongly about it. I've written about it, but um, why do you reach that? Why have you reached that conclusion? Yeah, for German speakers, there's an article where I've, I've elaborated, uh, which uh, is called uh, "America is vorbei, America is over," and it, it's really the result of me being uh, uh, back in, in California, San Diego, and and uh, San Francisco in May and June of this year, and me being quite shocked sobered mm -hmm. uh, by what I found because I always loved California I loved to be in San Francisco it was one of my dream cities it was like for me like the only viable alternative to Berlin if, if there was one but I hadn't been for five years or five and a half years because I think last time I was there for in 2012 and back then it really looked like you know the, the startup scene can basically change everything and Californian skies are blue uh, and, and there's opportunity everywhere and uh, as in Germany we were fixated on, on California and all the methods and you know the success stories and the money and the serial entrepreneurs there uh, so that was you know my level of expectation if you will and what I found this time around unfortunately was uh, you know the the conditions of living the living standard in, in San Francisco despite all this technology technology success had deteriorated much further yeah like San Francisco is a terrible city to live in if you are a decent human being and even if you're not a decent human being, meaning, uh, you know, like you're a billionaire and you can afford to stay away from, like, the ground level if you live on the 25th floor of a, of a fancy building, the moment that you step out, you may step into, like, the tent of a, of a homeless person who's sleeping in the street. And that's only the beginning of it, yeah? Like, the, the difference between the technology product, the really advanced understanding of, you know, society, how it intertwines with technology and money, etc., that's so far away from what's actually going down on the streets of San Francisco and how people live, uh, how like the rich get really all the sunny spots and the poor uh, are basically invisible. And I am no communist. Yeah, I hate the left. I hate the left. I have to say that again. Yeah? I hate the left. I'm a liberal. I'm all for people, you know, uh, enjoying the fruits of, uh, of the work. But, but sometimes things are just going too far. And if you have so many opportunities around the corner, like the smartest people on earth with all the money in, uh, in the world, they're, they're working next door to San Francisco and, and they're letting all of this happen. You could always say, well, you know, we're not social entrepreneurs. We, we work on stuff that makes us money. But there is a gap that's just too wide. And this gap is exactly what has opened in San Francisco. And sadly, I think also across uh, the US because... You know, people are just unhappy and they're becoming ever more unhappy because of all these things that make life so hard and unjust uh, over there, like from having to pay for your education, from you know, the lousy healthcare system to the, to the racism. That all these things are not, they will hurt anyone with, with uh, any decent person will be hurt by that. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Racism isn't only about the people who 
uh, are being excluded. It's also about the people who look at the exclusion and feel terrible about it. And it's the same with uh, Silicon Valley and with the technology scene. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to look at the or enjoy the glitz of it and the, the promise uh, of, of Silicon Valley if you're basically stepping into the, into the pool of a homeless person. Mm. Would you say then that this technology comes at a price? Not technology comes as a price. I would say that the money flows that uh, that feed the system, they have a price. You know? Like I mean, the, there is much less regulation in how much how money is being spent in the U.S. That's just part of the system. So it's the, the money is even freer than, than in Europe to go where uh, it brings the most return on investment, uh, and that is not bad as such. You know? I am absolutely no leftist, but. Uh, there needs to be more of an equilibrium. So, like, indirectly, you could say, yes, you know, the money that goes into uh, things like this uh, juice squeezing machine, what was that? Like, yeah, 750 yeah. million into, like, a juice squeezing machine. Juice press. Juice yeah. press, exactly. Uh, that's, like, 750 million that didn't help anyone who's, uh, you know, in dire straits uh, on the street. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's too easily said, yeah? Like, I mean, these are different sources, but I think there is some truth to that. Yeah. And do you think that's, that's an opportunity for, for, for Berlin or for Europe to, you know, attract more entrepreneurs from over there or just to do things better and learn from those mistakes? I don't think that the world is a just place like that, mm. you know? I don't, I don't really think it is. I think the there's like these opposing or different systems that each stand alone with their own ecosystem and the people who you know profit and, and lose in it. Uh, I mean, there's certainly many Americans here in, in Berlin who will tell you that, or not, not only Americans, that, that they find that here they, they get a better deal on you know, what they can achieve and what price they have to mm -hmm. pay for it. That's true. But that's not, that's not a wave of people. That's not like in a, in a size that, that makes yeah. a difference, really. I think... Um, the Americans are stuck to you know the system that they build, and we are stuck to the ones uh, that we build. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't see much of a of an exchange going on, and especially not since like you know the Chinese were uh, also now entering this technology uh, ecosystem, this global ecosystem. They seem to be rather closer to like the extreme capitalist case as in the U.S. And again, I'm not a leftist uh, than than you know than we are, so. Yeah, but I would also say that, I mean, like, Europe's startup scene, in particular Berlin's, like, has come with a price as well in terms of the gentrification of the city and the rents that have, like, in the three years that I've lived here, I you know, see. doubled in price. Um, I can't agree with that. No, I mean, I can't disagree with that. Like, I mean, they have doubled, but I don't think yeah. that it's the tech scene's fault. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not the tech scene's fault, but I'm just saying you know, that every startup ecosystem comes with its own problems and every technology... Um, area also has these issues. So, yeah, I'm not convinced <laughs> if Silicon Valley is over yet. Coming back to communications, um, you have a lot of experience on both sides of the pond. Do you think that, that you know, a lot of observers say that, you know, technology-wise, Europe is actually really good, but we're not as good as the Americans are selling the product, marketing the product in terms of communications. W would you agree with that? And, Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. I think anyone who has ever seen even, like, little kids in America do their show-and-tell in class, you know, and, and tell stories with a real narrative during their teenage years already, yeah, and compare that with... You know how how Germans or you know Eastern Europeans struggle with you know conveying anything at all, despite being like the smartest people around. Yeah. So definitely, yeah, absolutely. What to do about it? I think I mean like 
if you wanted to change that on a cultural level, which is probably what you would have to do to, to really make a difference, I don't think that that's even possible. Yeah? Because again, this whole system, you can't just take out particular parts and you know, leave out the rest. Uh, and I mean, I love the, the, the school system where people um, you know, bring stuff from their homes or tell about the, the, the jobs of their parents and then mm. lose their respects to speak in front of others. That's all really beautiful. But um, probably not on the top priority list here in Europe uh, yeah. with, with mm. education. I mean, um, we actually had this conversation a few weeks ago about um, features and benefits um, and talking about different pitch styles for Europe versus America, where, you know, America is all about the benefits and what's great for the customer. And here it's all about the features. So I think maybe that is just inherently absolutely. different. I, I said it earlier, you know, it's, it's something that you can teach people. Yeah? It's just that... And, and, and people, after a while, get really, really good at it. I mean, here in, in Berlin, yeah. I know a plethora and, and of entrepreneurs who are, who are perfect on stage and who uh, bring across the, the benefits of their companies fantastically you know, after years of working on them. Uh, and they had to learn that too. It's just that um, this doesn't come natural. To mm. most people, it doesn't come natural, but even those um, you know, can be helped. They can be helped. So what's next for you? So you've been working with Berlin Startup Academy now since 2010. And have you got anything new coming up? Absolutely, yes. Because, and that is a story for an entirely different podcast, uh, that old accelerator model uh, is over too, like America and, and you know the Silicon Valley, at least for me. And that's why I'm just now starting a new platform, uh, a new product called digitalmasterclasses.net. Check it out. Uh, and it's, it's really about bringing this peer-to-peer -peer mentoring idea that I've so for so long uh, done with like founders, getting them from zero to one, so to speak, that I believe that is uh, really powerful also in the upper echelons of our industry, that um, in, in the, the, the digital industry, meanwhile, has reached a stage where being on top of things uh, brings a lot of value, only that uh, knowledge is so quick to disappear that there's no books, no seminars, no fixed structure that can you know convey this uh, knowledge. And my idea is that uh, the paid mentoring between peers, between mega pros uh, at the top level is what our industry really needs and that's what we're going to do on digital masterclasses. Mm -hmm. I did one masterclass last week, uh, which was great. I'm doing another one in four weeks uh, and maybe eventually this is going to go into a platform where the best hold classes for the best. Mm -hmm. And what does knowledge sharing really entail in this kind of scenario? What I'm trying to do is uh, bring the many anecdotes into a structure that can that can be learned and applied. Yeah, like so far, I mean, the internet industry is so young that, uh, that it consists almost entirely of, of anecdotes. Uh, a couple of years ago, the first books were written like the Lean Startup or you know, uh, the business model canvas was invented uh, and, and accelerators too try to press these anecdotes into structures that can be applied again and again, that, that can scale. But we're very much at the beginning of this. In other industries, we're much farther ahead. And uh, in, the, in terms of top-level executive, if you will, learning, that's one of the things that I'm tackling. Yeah? I'm trying to, like the, in the masterclass last week, I've really tried to condense my experience of about eight years in running accelerator programs into more abstract and universal structures, into classic two-by-twos that help people uh, formulate their thoughts, place the problems that they, they want to um, evolve or that they want to build and become more aware of the problems that you know and that's beyond my own personal experience because they can't always you know call me up when there's something coming up so that's mm -hmm. one of the things that i want to achieve uh, structure the knowledge that that's there uh, make it repeatable uh, make it 
uh, usable also for people who are now only starting to maybe define or design innovation programs in universities, in the public space, whatever, in the social space. Uh, and then the second part is definitely that uh, you learn tremendously much when you talk about challenges and, and solutions with mm -hmm. peers who have been there yeah. and done it, who have invested the budget or didn't have any budget, who were under pressure from the uh, metrics that they had set for themselves or that other people set for themselves. And that's really stuff that, that no one can really help you with unless they've been there. So it's again back what I said with the entrepreneurship and having been in the trenches and having really suffered, how that makes a total difference. The same accounts for my industry mm -hmm. uh, and it's high time that somebody tackles it uh, uh, with a professional approach and tries to make some money along the way and that's exactly what I'm now <laughs> doing. Always the entrepreneur. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for the candid words. So before we let you go, where can people find you online? Um, my website where I publish all my methods continuously, where I also uh, link my the, the articles that I write, the columns that I write, the videos that I uh, make, etc. Um, to is uh, christoph.de it's a wild mixture of German and English just as reality is <laughs> like Berlin like Berlin is exactly christoph.de my methods are always published in English but some of the articles are in German um, I'm currently reworking berlinstartupacademy.com uh, with you know the new content digitalmasterclasses.net that's where uh, you find the masterclasses that I'm just now starting so it sounds a little bit like you know all over the place but that's how it always looks when you're starting something new. I like that. Yeah. And your final piece of communication advice for listeners out there? Final piece of communication advice? Well, you know, communicate with me. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming Thank to talk to us. Thanks for listening to episode five of Speak Like a CEO. Your hosts are Oliver Aus and Luna Carlson, production by Vincent Vogue. Follow us everywhere at likeaceo underscore. See you next week. San Francisco.